I'm Hillary Goodnow, and this is Interwoven, a podcast from Plymouth Plantation. Many of our listeners will be familiar with some of the more famous Plymouth Colony names, like William Bradford, William Brewster, and Miles Standish. But few know much about Isaac Allerton, an enigmatic man who rose to prominence in Plymouth, Marblehead, New Haven, and New Netherlands between 1620 and 1659. David Furlow and Lisa Pennington have made unraveling the mystery of Isaac Allerton and his family their life's work. Lisa is an Isaac Allerton descendant, and David is a descendant of Puritan, Virginian, and Dutch immigrants to 17th century America. We met with them on a busy summer morning at the museum in Plymouth to discuss Isaac Allerton's life in the colonial Atlantic world. So all great men have to start somewhere. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, David, what do we know about Isaac's life before he appears on Mayflower in 1620? We have indications that he was born in Suffolk based on sworn affidavits or uh, treaties uh, that he signed identifying himself as Isaac Allerton of Suffolk in 1651 and in 1639. He also uh, is a part of the Allerton family that's known to exist in uh, Suffolk in East Anglia, uh, which was at the heart of the Reformation in England. Beyond that, he's identified as a younger man von Landa or Landras in the various documents, which reflects that the Dutch saw him as a young man who had come out of London, where he had been a tailor's apprentice. And how does he become acquainted with the Robinson congregation? We really don't know the answer to that. We know that he left probably with his sister, Sarah Allerton, and we suspect that John Allerton, who was also on the Mayflower, was a brother, uh, or at least a close relation. And we know that they he probably went to Amsterdam first with his family, and then they went to Leiden, and that's where he met Mary Norris. And they got married in 1611 there at the Stadhuis, in Leiden, which is still standing, and if you go there now, it will look exactly like it did on the day they got married. <laughs> so it's amazing. And they lived there until the Mayflower left uh, in 1620. Also in uh, Leiden, he, was, uh, he became a citizen of Leiden in the Netherlands in 1612. And most intriguingly, at Pilgrim Hall, they have a wooden cup, the Alberton Cup, which has the date 1608 on it, which perhaps suggests an important point when he became a separatist and left England to join the Mayflower uh, Pilgrims in Leiden or at mm -hmm. that time in Amsterdam. Is Alberton's becoming a citizen of Leiden significant? It is because uh, there were only two that became citizens of the Mayflower group. And that signified that they were excellent in their profession. And it may even uh, be some evidence that they were being quite monetarily successful. We know that by the time he signed the Mayflower Compact, he was designated as a Mr. Isaac Allerton, which indicates status. And that we, we think that he gave a significant portion of the money uh, to pay for the Mayflower and the Speedwell. And it also opened up opportunities for him in New Netherland, uh, the colony that the Dutch created that spanned all the way from the Delaware River Valley to Connecticut because he was essentially 
a person of dual citizenship. That is a subject of the King of England or later of Cromwell's uh, authority and also at the same time a citizen of the United Netherlands. And Allerton's relationships with Dutch merchants and politicians later in the 1640s are well documented and we're going to look at that in a little bit. But how do you think this early time in Amsterdam and then in Leiden influenced his future business dealings? It made him a citizen of an Atlantic world in which he was absorbing one of the earliest entrepreneurial economies lessons, uh, one of the economies lessons, in that the Netherlands was a place where people would get together and purchase ships by one-eighth. They had open markets, uh, markets in investments. It was an early capitalist economy with no holds barred. And so by virtue of participating in that economy in the globalizing Netherlands of the early 1600s, it laid the foundations for what he did later on. One example, in 1618, we have an affidavit in which he is attesting to the ingredients, well, the, the uh strands of uh, fabric that go into a very expensive cloak for an English exile by the name of Nicholas Cloverley. And Cloverley's job was that of creating white clay tobacco pipes. He was one of the first people recorded to do that in the Netherlands. Well, that foreshadowed Isaac Allerton's later future as a merchant of tobacco in which he was plying a trade that stretched all the way from Newfoundland to Curaçao, but focused on the Chesapeake and trade between the Chesapeake, New Netherland, New Sweden, and New Haven, uh, an Atlantic network. Yeah, I, I always think of him looking at Nicholas Claverly. He's the tailor making the elaborate cloak with all the fine, rich materials. And he never forgets that Nicholas Claverly was, was doing quite well in the tobacco trade, and that's a lesson he learns. <clears throat> we'll, we'll skip ahead a little bit. We sort of lose Isaac Allerton in the midst of the Mayflower Crossing. He's one of the 102 passengers. He's with his wife. There are three young children. His wife is one of the three women pregnant during the Mayflower Crossing. And once they have established that Plymouth is going to be their new settlement rather than the Hudson River, Allerton quickly emerges as a political leader. Um, he's elected to be a magistrate. For our listeners who aren't familiar with these 17th century legal terms, can we define a magistrate? A magistrate is someone with judicial and executive authority. So in the Spanish world at that time and through this present day, you would refer to such a person as an all call day or a mayor judge. It's the same thing we have in much of the country where a county judge is someone who exercises the role of a president of a county and at the same time as a legislator and as a judge of administrative proceedings. Magistrates in New England combine that judicial and executive authority to lead a colony through difficult times. So what qualities do you think Allerton had that made him a great magistrate. He doesn't have any formal law training that we know of. He has no formal law training, but that was true for most of the people in the 17th century area. He was, in fact, someone who absorbed the law and practiced the law as a citizen in a time when there were very, very few lawyers. We have him representing a drunk Dutch, Dutchman in a trial uh, before the new 
uh, Haven magistrates in the 1650s, and he also served then as a bail bondsman. So his roles included that of bail bondsman, arbitrator, mediator, lawyer, merchant, venturer, agent for Plymouth colonists such as John Jenny in New Netherland. He wore a variety of hats and wore them well. And we think he must have had some kind of diplomatic abilities in addition to those. I mean, he's been described by contemporaries as having un, you know, unusual energy and address and enterprise. Those are the three. And so he must have been, uh, he mu and, and I would also, he must have been uh, a great speaker, but he also had language abilities. We know that he must have been quick uh, of course, he probably knew Dutch by the time he came here, and of course English. And he comes from Suffolk, which is a place where there was a lot of trade with the continent, so he would have been familiar with all kinds of traders from the, from the time he was a child uh, that were, spoke different languages. And we think over time he also spoke several Indian dialects. And of course, um, he would have spoken, we think, a little Swedish too, because he, above all all of the other merchants really dealt with the, the Swedes of New Sweden on the Delaware more than any other merchant. And with the Germans who had come to the New Sweden colony as mer mercenaries from the Thirty Years' War, they found <coughs> employment in New Sweden. He also negotiated directly with the French governors of La Nouvelle-France and Acadia, thus add French to the lesson. And I think the fact that he was born in Suffolk, which is exactly opposite of Northern Netherlands and Amsterdam means that he would have been in contact with Dutch people, with Germans, with French people, and of course just being on those voyages across the, lang uh, the Atlantic is like being on a three-month-long language tour mm -hmm. with people from other countries and other colonies. Did he have other roles in early Plymouth Colony besides that of a magistrate? Obviously, it sounds like a magistrate is sort of all-encompassing, <laughs> but were there any other major roles or offices that he filled in those early years? Yes, he was in fact a cattle rancher, but for a dairy uh, operation that we've been excavating with others in Kingston, where uh, through the women in his family who played a primary role in creating the American dairy industry in New, uh, in New England, we found that they were involved in raising dairy cattle, and that was a woman's profession at the time, and it's the archeology span that enables us to see the enormous contributions that Plymouth's women made to saving the colony, to providing milk and butter and cheese that extended the lifespan of the colony's children and provided items that could be sold for a profit uh, as the cattle economy, the dairy economy of New England boomed in the 1630s and 40s. Lisa? Well, he also was the first assistant um, for a number of years, at least until 1631, and then he was elected uh, in 1634 and 35 as first assistant to William Bradford, or uh, in 34 and 35, it was um, to Edward Winslow. And what that meant was that he was almost the deputy governor. And, uh, but his job in the 1620s was to go back and forth across the ocean at least four times that we know of to try to secure the patent for the land so that they were legally entitled to the land they were currently living on and that was very difficult. I mean, in addition to that, he was supposed to bring more um, people from Leiden, which he did, <coughs> and, and, 
also he was to buy goods and bring them back and sell the goods that they sent over in the ship. And so it was, and we'd look at it now, we say that's too much. It's too much to do. You can't do it within the time, you know, that you have or, and, and the money to go back to England, um, then go over to the Netherlands and pick up the, um, the extra people and bring them back. And it was, and unfortunately, he's the one who uh, was blamed for everything going wrong. Well, I mean, in that role as first assistant, he was essentially the vice president of the colony who was playing the secretary of state and secretary of commerce. And so he was the one sent back to England on behalf of the colony to negotiate the undertaker's deal to make Plymouth an autonomous colony. So he essentially put together the 17th century's first leveraged buyout mm -hmm. in which the Plymouth Colony's leaders assumed responsibility for paying off the debt to the adventurers and made it possible for the economy to stand on its own feet and make its own decisions without being dependent upon investors in London 3,000 miles away. Who've been largely dropping out of the venture for the past yes. five years or so. Because yes. we see that there is not a great profit margin in Plymouth Colony's <coughs> early decade. They have a very hard time getting going. Um, and so it's, it's so interesting to see Allerton as sort of broker, trying to broker these deals mm -hmm. and, and tread that fine line between business and politics. Yes. Um, and we see by the end of the 1620s, Allerton has emerged as a shrewd businessman. He's emerged as this leader in the community, but he has a very public falling out with the other major leaders of the colony, particularly William Bradford. And... Do we know anything about this fallout of what actually happened and, and why Bradford is so vicious towards Allerton um, in his history of Plymouth Colony? There are a number of different reasons, but they really come down to two very different visions of what the new colony of Plymouth would be like. I think the best way to analogize that is to contrast the different visions for American society that you have from a communitarian leader focused on religion, such as Jerry Falwell on the other hand, one hand, to a leader such as Ted Turner who focuses on business and creating networks of communication like CNN on the other. Two different views, one much more communitarian and religious on the part of Bradford, one much more oriented towards a practical view of making an economy thrive for a new colony so that its people will succeed and that's the Allerton view, and I think that's the essential thing. Beyond that, Allerton brings in people who can make the economy work, like Edwin Ashley, uh, who becomes the trader with the Indians in Maine, who actually frock, frolics with the Indian women and goes <laughs> native and is a very successful fur trader, but this offends the sensibility of Bradford and other religious conservatives. Uh, and then Allerton brings in... Um, a secretary uh, to get things done, but he is the same secretary who had mounted the Maypole, who had put up the Maypole at Marymount, uh, Thomas Morton, and that immediately in 1629 incenses Governor Bradford, mm -hmm. and it's written in Plymouth Plantation that Allerton brought over Morton and housed him across the street from the governor, quote, as if to nose him, that is, as if to annoy the governor just by his very presence because Bradford considered Morton to be a profane young man just as he did Edwin Ashley. 
these two different worldviews conflicted and collided in the Plymouth of 1630-31. And, and I also think there was a, a difference in view. They gave him, and as lawyers, we sit there and we seize upon this, is they gave him a full power of attorney to buy what other, other, whatever goods he wanted. And we, that means you have a full right to use your discretion to buy the goods. And he did that. And then when he came back, uh, and, he, and they couldn't pay him for doing all this, so they said, well, you can buy your own goods too. So he comes back, and Bradford says in Plymouth Plantation, well, we thought his goods were better than ours. So, you know, these are early, um, basically early capitalists. <laughs> and it sounds too like <laughs> yeah. Allerton is looking for sort of opportunities maybe on a more individualist yes. level, and Bradford is very <clears throat> interested in the communal. Right. And it seems like his big beef with Allerton is, well, you didn't put the, the community first. You put That's your right. own interests first. And that we mm -hmm. see all the way back to the land division in 1623 mm -hmm. and even the Mayflower Compact, there's this insistence upon we need to be communal. And when right. that ultimately fails, we see Bradford get very despondent toward yes. the end of his life over this loss of community at the heart of Plymouth Colony. Oh, yes. I mean, absolutely. Um, you can tell William Bradford almost, you're right, gets depressed at the end because it's it's not untypical for leaders to say, isn't everything great when I'm in charge? <laughs> Don't we all long for the days when I was in charge and everybody, you know, everybody answered to me? It was wonderful. It was paradise. I think you've got it exactly <laughs> right. Jeremy Bangs, the Leiden Pilgrim scholar who's analyzed the Pilgrim's lives in Netherlands and then uh, in the Netherlands and then in America, described Isaac Allerton as being the first who individualized, who broke away from the collective mold and began thinking the way a businessman does. And that was why perhaps in New York they referred to Isaac Allerton as the first Yankee trader. What happens to Allerton after this fallout? Does he stay in Plymouth Colony or does he move on? Well, we know he still, he was married to Fear Brewster uh, in 1626. And so he maintained a residence in Plymouth. Um, and we also know, of course, he was elected the first assistant again in 1634 to 35. So, um, but what sadly what happens is that Fear dies in December of 1634. And there was a, a general, we don't know what kind of a disease it was, but it wiped out several of the Mayflower um, uh, people that had come over. And it may have, he may have also lost, he had two children with her, uh, Sarah and Isaac Jr. And Sarah, we know, did not reach maturity, so she may have died in this plague. And so by that time, um, his daughter Mary was getting married to Thomas Cushman and his daughter, remember, was marrying Moses Maverick and Marblehead. And so it's really the breakup of the family. And all he has left is poor little Isaac Jr., who is only about four years old at this time. And we know that he went to live with his grandfather, Elder Brewster, and that uh, he, and, and I love this, I love this thought that Elder Brewster is teaching his little four-year-old grandson Greek and Hebrew and Latin to prepare him uh, eventually for Harvard. And that is exactly where little Isaac goes. But he lives with Elder Brewster until Elder Brewster dies. And then he lives with Love Brewster, his uncle, because Isaac is off on a, on a ship all the time. And uh, so I think 
after you're right, after 1634, it's really the breakup of the family, and he will come home to Plymouth and see his son um, and daughter, Mary, who stay in Plymouth. But really, he is, I'd say, constantly in transit after that. Right, I would add that beginning in 1631, he is plying the trade along the Kennebec River to Maine and actually founds the fishing industry of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in Marblehead after greeting Governor Winthrop and the Winthrop fleet mm -hmm. in the Salem Roads in 1630. So by 1634 to 35, he's got a fleet of six fishing vessels operating out of Marblehead, mm -hmm. and he turns those over to his daughter, remember, when she marries a prominent local Puritan, Moses Maverick, and they begin their life together in Marblehead, 14 miles north of Boston. What happens to Bartholomew, the oldest son? Well, that's right. Um, and I think this indicates that, that he really believes in education and it, you know, it may reflect some of the education he obtained, which we don't, we don't know what it was. But about 1630, we think Bartholomew goes back to England and he, um, obtained some kind of education to be a minister. We don't, we haven't been able to find out where, but David actually just made a breaking um, uh, research breakthrough on where, what happened to Bartholomew when he went back. Yes, Bartholomew ends up going to, uh, going to Ireland and arrives there on March 10th of 1640 where he receives two vicarages in rural county Cork in the center of the island. But this was at a time when Ireland was roiling with potential conflict because the Catholic Irish seethed at the English Protestant control over them and as the English Civil Wars came on, English power receded and the Irish revolted in October of 1641 in a bloody uh, battle for their own independence. And we know now from recently published online records that Bartholomew Allerton filled out affidavits that reflected his losses of his two vicarage churches at a place in Cork that was within a few miles of one of the major battles and sieges. And this was at a time of massacres and counter massacres we know that he then came back to England and he returned to the family's native Suffolk, where by 1644 he was a minister in Bramfield, uh, eking out a living and uh, contributing nevertheless uh, to a petition to reform the Church of England in Parliament, living out as a vicar, raising cattle and dabbling in land investments and uh, fathering children and creating two families there. So he does all of these things and then during Cromwell's time achieves prominence in this vicarage church in Bramfield, Suffolk, England. He passes away in September of 1658 uh, and leaves children whose descent we're still trying to locate now because we believe that some of them came to America with important consequences. So if any of our listeners think they're Bartholomew Allerton <laughs> descendants, they should get in touch with the museum. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Um, so moving through the decades, when we, by the time we come to the 1640s, Allerton has arrived in the New Netherlands. So he's moved from Plymouth to Marblehead. 
and now he's in what we would think of today as, as basically New York City. Um, and as you say, he's referred to as an agent of the Dutchman, and he's again involved in politics and diplomacy. How did this seemingly radical career change come about? Well, we know by 1639, 40, he's an active merchant <clears throat> in uh, New Netherlands, specifically the island then referred to as Manhattans, what we refer to as Manhattan now. He owns one house at number one Broadway across from the Dutch church and fort, and then another uh, triangular shaped property along the East River where he has his warehouse where significant historical events occur. He is there acting as an appointed mediator and arbitrator and magistrate. And at a time when the Dutch governor, Willem Kieft, touches off a genocidal war by launching unprovoked attacks on Indians who had refused to pay his uh, demands for essentially extortion money or tribute, uh, at that time, Allerton is there and he's elected by the people to serve on a board, a council of eight men in September of 1643 to restrain and restrict uh, the Governor General Willem Kieft in essentially a rebellion of the ordinary people against a corrupt and incompetent leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and that occurs after, amongst other things, Anne Hutchinson had been massacred by the Indians who were retaliating against the Dutch governor. So in that role, Isaac Allerton Pulls together, uh, pulls together the defense of the colony and helps to keep the colony in existence, but also to keep Willem Kieft from doing anything else as disastrously as his unprovoked attack on the Indians. And you mentioned the significance of his property, uh, his two pieces of property. If we look forward in time, what significance does that property hold? Well, this is so exciting. Every time you want to go to New York City, go to number one Broadway, and you will see a sign there that says that George Washington stayed at that property during the Revolutionary War. And, but we know Isaac Allerton must have had a very nice house there because it later became the governor's house uh, in, uh, after he sold and out and went to New Haven. But I always like that because it's right there by the fort and uh, he also had a warehouse property, and, and some of the old maps from 1660, they have Allerton's warehouses drawn on the map, and it's a triangular piece of property which still exists. If you go there, the triangle is still there on the road map. It's on Pearl Street. They used to have a Wendy's there, so you could feel like you go in there and have a cup of coffee with Isaac Allerton's land, but now they have a store and a little park and it's also there by the... Um, the Seaport Museum. Oh, what's the monument? Oh, the monument to the Titanic. The Titanic is right there. But I think it's just so interesting that even though they've reclaimed some land there and made it, that his triangular piece of land is right there still. Do you think it's significant, looking back with hindsight mm -hmm. being 2020, that Isaac Allerton, this Atlantic figure, is right there at the tip of New York, arguably one of the great <laughs> international cities in the world. Perfect. It's perfect for him. If he, if he could look into the future, he'd be so proud. <laughs> I think even in the 1630s and 40s, Isaac knew that with respect to real estate, it's location, location, location. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Right there on the water. And we know he really started 
um, trading with all kinds of international characters. And David, you can give them some of the names. Oh, uh, there were uh, there were people there with the Barbados uh, in New York. Uh, the uh, Anthony the Turk of Salay. The Turk of Salay, <laughs> who was a Dutch, essentially a Dutch pirate, uh, whose father had been a pirate and his mother had been a Moroccan woman, and he ends up being the first Muslim uh, in Manhattan in 1638 and 1639. Isaac Allerton is doing business with him uh, in 1639 and 1640. And then, to leap ahead, uh, Anthony, the Turk of Soleil's Koran was sold at an auction in about 1922. So people don't realize that there were, in fact, at least one Muslim on Manhattan uh, is early as 1639 and in advance of the Jews who came there for the first time in 1654. And there were also all kinds of, of people from all over the, the, the world, basically, that he traded with. And that's one thing that was fundamentally different with, than William Bradford. Uh, William Bradford thought you really shouldn't trade with people that, you know, that don't share your religion and uh, that kind of thing. And that's not what Isaac Allerton thought. Isaac Allerton was a friend to all and an enemy to none. He sold codfish to the Spanish Catholics mm -hmm. and dealt with the Portuguese. He was bringing in horses from uh, Aruba and Bonaire for Peter Stuyvesant, the director general of the Netherlands in New Amsterdam, today's New York City. He was trading with the Swedes, bringing over millstones, butter, shoes, and other things to the Swedes when their resupply ships from the Swedish home country failed because Queen Christina was distracted with foreign wars and affairs. Yeah, uh, and she didn't care about supplying her own colonists. He did. He stepped into the gap and saved, I think, a lot of lives, or they would have starved. Which is one of the reasons we see this man who started out as a tailor's apprentice and Mm -hmm. London is essentially weaving together the fabric of early civilization on the Atlantic coast. When we look at Allerton at the end of his life in 1658, he is no longer in New Netherlands. He's come to the New Haven colony. What brings him to New Haven? He was apparently there as early as 1643-44 because he's referred to as Isaac Allerton of New Haven by Governor Winthrop in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was there to trade. It was an entrepreneurial colony with great hopes for the future uh, and uh, some of those hopes were justified. Yale University and the religious traditions that continued there, the educational institutions that began there reflected the fact that it was an extraordinarily well-educated group of English Puritans and separatists who went there to combine the godly with the economic, to make money while serving God as they saw it. And that was one of the roles that Isaac had. And if you think about it, he then had one Dutch base for his Dutch citizenship in New Netherlands capital at Manhattan's, and then just some 30 to 40 miles away down Long Island Sound in New Haven, he had his residence in an English-speaking jurisdiction. So taking his pinnace out into Long Island Sound, he could haul up the Dutch flag when he entered Dutch waters, <laughs> haul up the English one when he entered English waters, and be perfectly legal in both contexts. So it gives him a lot of flexibility. That's flexibility. right. Flexibility. 
And, and but you know, one of the interesting things is he's not just a merchant because you know, if any study of New Haven shows that uh, uh, the governors Eaton and Davenport that were there were very strict about anyone who could become a member of the church, and you had to go through a long justification publicly to prove that you really were saved and you believed properly. Well, Mr. Allerton became a member of the church there, as did his wife, uh, his third wife, Joanna Swinnerton. We don't know when they married. We think they may have met in New Netherland, but um, she, prob she may have had a daughter, Elizabeth, who ended up marrying his son, Isaac Jr. And so they built a beautiful residence. They said it was one of the finest residences in New Haven. It was on the water where I think the railroad tracks are now. Where the railroad is now. It was outside of the, the New Haven grid, uh, but it was known to be just as fine as Governor Davenport and Governor Eaton's homes. So that kind of gives you an idea of, of, of how well it looked. Um, it was described as a fine home with four porches. Oh, and that's porches right. were prestige elements associated with people who exercised magistrate governor's power, and he was recognized as such. And then that house, years after his death in 1662, played a critical role in the history of New England mm -hmm. because it was there that his wife, Joanna Swinnerton, met two of the regicides, two of the Puritans who had been responsible for signing Charles I's death warrant. And when Charles I sent over assassins uh, to track down each of those men and to kill them. To avenge his father's death. Yes. To avenge his father's <clears throat> death, which he perceived as, ter uh, as, you know, the- Treasonous. Treasonous. It was Joanna Swinnerton, Allerton, who hid the two regicides behind the wainscoting in the kitchen of the fine house with four porches in New Haven uh, and saved their lives. And then they remained uh, hidden away amongst the New Englanders who supported them for years afterwards, and one of them came to the assistance and helped save a small town, Hadley, uh, during King Philip's War because he used his military skills to organize the defense. It's a small world. It's a small <laughs> world. Well, especially when you, it's a small world for Puritans, and it's, and the yeah. New England colonies, I think, we think of in the 17th century as very rural, very isolated, mm -hmm. disconnected, and what your scholarship is showing and scholars that are working on the Atlantic world on both sides, the Atlantic and in the Caribbean, we're all finding that these families, these networks are so mm -hmm. much more connected than we could have ever imagined doing this scholarship 50 years ago or 100 years ago when this, when people got interested right. once again in, in the Puritan stories. Mm -hmm. um, and looking at this, we've touched a little bit on this, but I'm wondering what you think really sort of sets Isaac apart. We've talked a little bit about his individualism, his balance of religion and profit, but I'm, I'm, th I'm wondering, do you think there's one, is there one anecdote that stands out for you that sort of encapsulates what makes him different from other early New England leaders? Lisa? Um, <clears throat> I will, I think that before anyone else, that at least that we've been able to find in history, he saw big picture and the future of how all of these colonies needed to work together to save each other. I mean, they are on the edge of the wilderness with, you know, there are hostile Indians from time to time and they all need each other. 
And I think he was one of the first to realize that. And I, I think um, one of the examples of, of that is that Isaac Allerton was one of the first people to uh, be on a, an arbitration tribunal to basically settle claims between colonies and also to keep the peace. And I think, David, you have a good story about that. Sure, there was, uh, there was a point in time in July of 1643 in which the governor of New Sweden, which is based basically now in Wilmington, Delaware, arrested a New Haven fur trader, Lamberton, for trespassing upon this new Swedish territory. And at that time, uh, the Swedish governor conducted a trial, imposed a fine on him, and then sent Lamberton back to New Haven without his furs and having, and with an additional 12 pounds taken out of his pocket for fines. Uh, Lamberton then complained to John Winthrop, who was in charge of the New England Confederation. Winthrop writes in September of 1643 to uh, Johann Prince, the governor of New Sweden, says, this is unfair, what have you done? And so Johann Prince assembles the first international appellate tribunal in America at his Princehof, or Prince's Castle, in what is now Tinicum Island in Delaware, just south of Philadelphia. And there he brings in two Englishmen, several Dutchmen, a Baltic uh, trader, a sea captain. Uh, so it's Dutch, English, Baltic, Swedish, German, all on this panel. One of those people is Isaac Allerton. And it is to determine the fairness of the Swedish governor's actions. And Isaac Allerton and the others conclude that the Swedish governor did act fairly, did grant due process, essentially, to John Lamberton of New Haven, and this matter helps bring peace between the various colonies. That's why when I think of Isaac Allerton, I think of him as being the visionary who saw the common interests of the people, including the Indians, uh, because he purchased land from them, he did not seize land from them, he negotiated with them, he befriended them, as well as the Swedes, the Germans along the Delaware River, the Dutch, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, and he dealt with all of these colonies in North America and applied essentially an early version of the concept e pluribus unum uh, out of many people, a common Atlantic interest in what he would have referred to as Christendom, the civilization that was springing up and which became early America. You both have been working on Isaac Allerton for over a decade. Um, where did your fascination with Isaac and his family start? Well, I have to say, without being too, too much hagiography there, um, I, I discovered that I was an Isaac Allerton descendant through his daughter, Remember. Uh, I think back in 1998, and uh, I remember waking up David and going, David, David, guess what? I'm a Mayflower descendant. I think it was about 3 in the morning. I don't think he cared at that point. But <laughs> and how did I respond to that? Yeah. Well, I think you said something that we, we don't need to say, something about a Mayflower, madam. But um, anyway, but from that time, you know, I read the cursory descriptions of him, and I'm like, well, that's interesting. And they weren't entirely positive. So... <laughs> I, uh, it just became more and more interesting, and, and, and all the, he, his life went on a different trajectory than most of the other pilgrims, and he left Plymouth 
relatively early, and his children were spread out. Um, and you know, it's interesting. The boys he cared about um, becoming educated. Uh, he insisted that Bartholomew get educated in England, and then when Harvard was founded, he insisted that Isaac Jr. go to Harvard, and he's the only Mayflower child that actually graduated in the class of 1650. I think he wanted Isaac Jr. to be a minister, but he wanted to be a merchant uh, like his dad, and that he became a very successful um, merchant uh, in Virginia. Merchant and magistrate, he became the second yes. most powerful man in the Virginia General Assembly yeah. and helped with Augustine Washington, who was George Washington's great-grandfather, and Richard Lee, who was Robert E. Lee's great-grandfather. Uh, they got together and they created the first country club in America in the northern neck of Virginia. So Isaac Allerton, either to himself, on land that Isaac Allerton mm -hmm. Sr., the father, had purchased from the Indians in Westmoreland County, for his son, Isaac Allerton Jr., the merchant and magistrate who graduated from Harvard. So, so basically, I mean, I, I think, and, and, and then he made sure his girls were well married, you know, to the elder Cushman and to Moses Maverick, the magistrate in Marblehead. So I, I think those were all interesting stories that, of course, because I have a personal connection, <laughs> we wanted to research. I'll supplement that by saying we came here in 1999, a year later. And when we came here, there was an exhibit at Plymouth Plantation that showed Isaac Allerton and his children. Remember, well, it was Mary. It was Mary Allerton, the oldest daughter, and then youngest, um, the daughter. youngest daughter. And remember Allerton and Bartholomew Allerton with him looking out into the future, photographed from behind them. And so then I'm seeing this family, and the family was interesting. And I see, you know, that. Uh, his oldest son later on mirrors his early Puritan separatist leanings by becoming the minister who goes back to England. His oldest daughter marries the leading magistrate uh, and they create the fishing industry of Massachusetts Bay up yeah. in Marblehead. The next daughter marries Elder Cushman the elder of the Church of Plymouth, and she is in fact the last of the surviving Mayflower descendants, uh, Mayflower passengers to die in Plymouth in 1699. 1699, mm -hmm. uh, on the very site that we've been excavating for Allerton, you know, dairying artifacts, and then the youngest son goes to Harvard, being educated by the elder William Brewster and becoming one of the most prominent men in Virginia, whose descendants include, amongst others, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So I'm looking at this fascinating picture of a man who believed in toleration, who worked with a wide variety of people, and who had a vision of the future for America that has largely come true. Now, one of the interesting things about the two of you, um, in addition to being <laughs> great historians, you're also both lawyers. And so I'm curious. How does being a historian align with practicing law? Does it change the way you approach historical subjects? Well, we like to think we're much more logical. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also, I mean, from a practical standpoint, we understand what the deeds are and the powers of attorney and, and, and all of these things. Um, Charter party contracts <laughs> and that sort of thing. Yeah, we understand. You know, those are the kinds of things that we, that we have to deal with. So I think, it's, um, I think it's very good training, actually, for historical research. Uh, and for me, it's been fascinating because the familiarity with the legal instruments, which have mm -hmm. not changed all that much, 
have enabled us to understand and to untangle the debt dispute between the colony's leaders in the 1640s. Mm-hmm. We think we have now untangled what had seemed to be an incredible mess to other people. Uh, and beyond that, it's fascinating to engage in the archaeology of the law because when you look at Isaac Allerton, you dig back down to the lowest, deepest levels of American history, and you see someone who is practicing law as an attorney, who is acting as a magistrate judge, who is serving as a bail bondsman, who is helping to craft agreements that would have consequences, like the Mayflower Compact. Oh, and he also sues a lot. <laughs> he yes. brings a lot of actions for debt, and he gets sued in turn for actions for debt. And they, in fact. I think one of the one of the little saddest things I think is a few days before he dies, he's actually in a trial in New Haven, and this man is suing him for debt, and he must have been very very ill because he dies shortly. He dictates a very quick will and he dies, and he's seventy three, and he testifies and the jury finds against him. And that must have really, really hurt him because he said his defense was that this debt is offset because this man owes me. And so sadly, he dies thinking that I guess uh, that the jurors didn't believe him and his reputation should have uh, allowed him to win the case. Ironically, his son becomes the executor of his estate and appeals the case and proves that there was an offset that he wasn't lying, and so I feel like the son vindicated him. I'm very happy for that. <laughs> That's what a Harvard education could yeah, do. There you go. <laughs> uh, David, you have spoken um, and written about the, why the 17th century still matters um, in our most recent issue, Plymouth Life magazine, and I was wondering if you could share some of your thoughts with our listeners, because I think a lot of people say, oh yeah, the 17th century, 400 years ago, look how, look how primitive they were, look how how barbaric. And I think if we start to peel back the onion, we find that it's much more relevant than we think it is. If you go to the core of the onion, what you see is a preview and forecast of what America would become, where you see people like Isaac Allerton transcending these regional differences, these colonial boundaries, these uh, boundaries of nationalism and religion to find the common threads with which to weave together this early transatlantic commerce, this vision of a new America, the specific things I would say, rule of law in America. You can't find a better model for the America that was to be than the Mayflower Compact of November 1620 in which a group Mm -hmm. of English settlers decided that they would become a body politic, that they would hold the first elections of a governor and choose a governor by the people who are actually settled there. Beyond that, they were open to the new possibilities and opportunities that immigration would bring and welcomed people to the shores here of Plymouth and also interacted with people of various backgrounds, including the Indians, including the Swedes and Germans and the Dutch uh, and the Spanish and the Portuguese, showing that the dream of America could encompass many threads woven together by people who wanted to create a new world, a world in which people who wouldn't have done so well in Europe had a second chance to wear many hats, 
assume many responsibilities and craft a new and better world in America. And that's what he did. This has been such a fascinating and wonderful conversation. I want to thank you both for joining us and I hope we'll get to continue our conversation soon. Okay. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Want to learn more? Download or stream more full-length interwoven episodes available from iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. Interwoven is brought to you by Plymouth Plantation, hosted by Hilary Goodnow and produced by Tom Begley. Our original theme music, Voices from the Past, was composed by John Dante Previdini. Thanks for listening.